uh, you know, that was one of the most vivid memories that Joe had of his Buchenwald experience when they were early when they were at the camp, almost immediately after arrival, a German guard who was probably suspecting or observing them looking around the camp, is there any way we can escape, any way we can get out of here? And with kind of, with a smirk, you know, he pointed to the smoke coming out of the crematorium chimney. He said, that's the only way you leave here, as smoke. An excerpt from today's guest, who's written a true account of a World War II American airman who wound up at one of the most notorious Nazi death camps, Buchenwald. New York Times best-selling author Tom Clavin is here, and I'll speak with him after this break. This is Point of the Spirit. Welcome back. I'm Robert Chow. Today's guest has worked as a newspaper editor, magazine writer, and TV and radio commentator. He's a New York Times number one best-selling author, and his latest book is called Lightning Down, a World War II story of survival. And author Tom Clavin joins us now. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, you're very welcome. I'm enjoying the books uh, very much so far, and it reads like a, a motion picture, especially the first opening portion where the prisoners are pulled out of the train cars and lined up against the the tracks and uh, the Germans pull out the machine guns and just wait. It's just unbelievable incident that happened. Yeah, the, the idea was that if I started with the very first paragraph, which is basically Joe Moser was born, you know, giving the background of the main character, uh, it takes a while for people to get to the, you know, the, the pivotal pivotal events. So I thought, okay, Let's tease them a little bit and say, and you know, they're, they're, as you say, they're pulled out of the train. They're, they're, the machine guns are set up. They're, they're seconds away from being mowed down. And um, hopefully the reader is asking, well, what's going on here? How did they get here? And, and what's going to happen? And then, uh, then the book gets into the background of the main character. Well, you certainly achieved your, uh, your opening goal, that's for sure. <laughs> now, you discovered this story through an obituary. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, I'd, I'd like to say that I have such tremendous investigative skills, and that's how I found the story. However, I stumbled upon it. I, I, um, I was doing some research for Bob Drury, and I had done a book called Lucky 666 about a B-17 and uh, during World War II. And I was doing some research for that, and this would have been December 2015, and I happened to be looking around, and this, this obituary for Joe Moser came up in a uh, state of Washington weekly newspaper. He had just died at the age of 94. And it was a pretty straightforward obituary, except for one line that said he was one of 170 uh, pilots, uh, allied pilots who were who was sent to Buchenwald uh, and, and, and survived. I know I'm giving some away of the story, but it doesn't end at Buchenwald. And so uh, that really intrigued me. I had not heard about anything like that before. I mean, as far as we know from reading and, and, and movies or whatever, if you're a captured flyer, you go to a POW camp and, right. and hopefully the war doesn't last much longer and you're, you're you know, liberated. So uh, I put that aside and it began when I had time, uh, a journey that really is almost six years ago. I guess I, 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 next month would be six years. I found that clip mm-hmm. uh, of doing the research and, and, and finding out what about not only more about Joe Moser himself, but about the situation where Allied pilots ended up in a Nazi death camp? Yeah, and that was uh, another one of my questions. He was shot down in August 1944 and taken to a German prison camp in Paris. But 
he and other airmen were moved subsequently, not told where they were going. Why were they moved to the concentration camp? Yeah, it's a good question if they would have ended up at Buchenwald at all. They were being kept in a prison uh, outside of Paris. Uh, it, it's it's F-R-E-S-N-E, Fresne French Prison, which had been notorious for its cruelty. And they, they may have been kept there indefinitely and interrogated, tortured, and possibly executed. However, the, uh, the Allied forces were nearing Paris. Right. And so they had to be moved somewhere and some way along the line uh a decision was made not just the pilots but uh, there were really about 2,000 people on that train packed into these cattle cars to send them all to to buchenwald and uh uh so yeah and they had yes as you say they had no idea where they were going and, the, right. and only when the train cars were thrown open and they saw themselves in this not only saw this facility that was very imposing but they saw other prisoners who were in these filthy rags of clothing and, and emaciated and uh uh, looked like they were only days away from death, and many of them were. Right. Uh, that it started to dawn on them: Oh my God, this is not a POW camp at all. This is something entirely different. Yeah, they described them like walking skeletons. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you know these these pilots, I should point out, especially in the case of Joe Moser, uh, they had not really been dealing with much deprivation up to that point. You know, some of them had been at the Fresno prison for longer, uh, and had, had already started to. You know, pay the price for the for the beatings and torture going on there. But for some of the pilots who have been shot down recently, they were used to having a warm meal when they come back from a mission. Used to having a beer, you know, in the, in the, in the right. base club, and to go from that, like Joe Moser did, basically in the space of forty eight hours, to go from that to on a train that takes five days and nights in cattle cars, and then go to Buchenwald, uh, the transition was was mind numbing at best. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Now, he, uh, Joe Moser, passed away before you began this story, but you learned about him through his family. You worked closely with the family, correct? Yeah, the Moser family uh, were, were very helpful. They, they gave me materials and the things that, the, you know, Joe Moser in his 80s had decided to jot down, and he and a friend, Gerald Barron, uh, had, he had basically... I wouldn't say dictated, but he told his story to Gerald Barron, who wrote it down in what became basically a privately published, uh, small published memoir. And so uh, I got, I was able to get that. The family sent other materials that were not available to the to the general public. And the other thing that was helpful, or I, I should say was, was satisfying to me, uh, and I should point out they helped me as people who read the book will see with photo, personal family photographs. Right. Um, is that when I finished the first draft of the book, uh, I sent it to the Moser family. Uh, you know, Joe had left behind five children who were all, of course, well into adulthood by now. And uh, I, my, it's, it's unusual to do that, but my intention was, is there anything in here I'm writing about that's really gonna be really embarrassing? Because the, the book does really, is kind of uh, really close range right up with, with Joe and his experiences and his, his, his thoughts and his, his uh, feelings about things and I didn't want the family to if there's going to be something embarrassing would you let me know that now and a daughter got back to me after reading it she said no you know not only do I not have a problem with this but I have found out things about my father that I never knew you know more about my father than I do oh. and that was a strange comment but I also found it kind of satisfying because I, the family was unaware of some of his experiences certainly oh. the intensity of them and you got to know him obviously very well through your research. What 
traits do you believe in his upbringing helped him survive the whole experience in the concentration camp? Well, Joe was born and raised on a farm in the state of Washington. And uh, he was still, I believe, only an adolescent when his father passed away. And he became, you know, the man of the house, so to speak. You know, his widowed mother, he had a younger brother, two younger sisters. So there was that, the, the, the extra work burdens that were placed on him. Uh, but also his, his mother was insisting that he not drop out of school. And so he was also uh, going, going to school, going to high school, playing on the football team, uh, trying to keep up with academic subjects. Uh, he was really challenged a lot in his uh, in his early years and i think i think it was a combination of that resilience that he uh stored up so to speak and and also being very close to family uh he was you know he, he loved his community loved his family his mother and his siblings very dearly and i think that combination of resilience and and love and the desire to see them again he was going to endure anything he yeah. had to see them again was uh, played big roles in helping him survive I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, my guest will be author Robert Gowdy discussing his new book, The War of Jenkins Ear. The War of Jenkins Ear is a discreet thing that happened on this side of the globe for very particular reasons. They raised about 4,000 American soldiers from the colony under the English. They shipped them down to the Caribbean to fight this war. These are the first veterans of, of a foreign war. One of the captains being Lawrence Washington, who was George Washington's older brother. That's next time. Thanks for listening to the program. I hope you'll support our guests by clicking on the book purchase link in this episode's description. Each purchase helps support local bookstores, and that's always a good thing. Now, at Buchenwald, there was um, a commander, the senior commander in charge from uh, New Zealand, Colonel Lamison, correct? Yes. How did he hold the men together in such a, under such horrific conditions? Well, I think there were two ways, and he is one of my, you know, a very important character in the book, uh, Phil mm-hmm. Lamison. Uh, in two ways, one was that he, um, uh, when it was determined that he was the senior officer present, he he spoke to the men and told them and convinced them um, that the best chance they had of survival was to work together and maintain discipline as if they were still an active military unit. You know, march together, eat together, do this together, do everything do everything together and sort of like defiance of the German guards too. And so that was very important to them to have this sense of brotherhood and community among themselves in the much larger community of Buchenwald. The other way he did it was by his actions. Um, In the book, uh, I I depict several times when he is defying the German officers and the common, even the commandant of the camp Buchenwald, and he's beaten, he's threatened with death numerous times. And uh at any moment a trigger could have been pulled and would have ended his life so that kind of courage uh in in the most trying circumstances also inspired his men and 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 made it even more difficult for the germans to to break through and break them down and they tried because one of the things you mentioned in your book is they tried to terrorize them but what did they tell them the way they would be leaving the camp upon their arrival yeah, that was, uh, uh, you know, that was one of the most vivid memories that Joe had of his Buchenwald experience when they were early when they were at the camp, uh, I think almost immediately after arrival. Uh, you know, the, a German guard who was probably suspecting or observing them looking around the camp, is there any way we can escape, any way we can get out of here? 
And with kind of with a smirk, you know, he pointed to the smoke coming out of the crematorium chimney. He said, he said, that's the only way you leave here as smoke. And I'm sure that kind of sent a chill over the, uh, the prisoners. Especially to say this early on. I mean, after a time, of course, they became, I wouldn't say accustomed, but, but they, they, they could see how terrible and horrific life at Buchenwald was. When they first got there, they didn't know what to expect. I mean, it, it should be understood that um, uh, we know a lot about what happened at the German concentration camps, you know, 70 plus years after the fact. But during the war itself, a lot of that information had not even escaped Germany, let alone made its way to the United States. So, so that, that, that there, even the existence of the concentration camps and the, and the true depravity that went on there was, was, was a, a, a shock to many of those Allied pilots. It was uh, categorized as a, as a labor camp, but it was truly a death camp. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Germans had uh, different categories for camps. And there, were, there was a death camp like Auschwitz, for example, which the primary purpose of its existence was to kill. Uh, and it did so very, very uh, ruthlessly and efficiently. Uh, Buchenwald technically was a work, a labor camp. However, the practical effect was that as time went on and you had uh, prisoners who were barely subsiding on any kind of food, uh, diphtheria and all kinds of other diseases were running rampant uh, through the camp um, uh, that, that they, and they were just, some would just literally work to death and others were just killed because the, it would amuse the guards to kill people. Uh, it was in effect also a, a death camp. I mean, the, the, the category did not matter after a time. And after the war, I don't want to give any of the end of the book away, as I, I mentioned, but after the war, it came as a shock to the Allies and some of the American military officials that they were actually at Buchenwald. Can you go into that? Well, the, uh, the Camp Buchenwald, was, if I remember correctly, was officially liberated on April 12, 1945. And uh, the first uh, American soldiers uh, who, were, who entered the camp were, of course, profoundly shocked. Uh, they had this this wave after wave of prisoners who were, who, as we mentioned before, were like walking skeletons coming at them. And, and on the one hand, they were coming at them to uh, thank them for liberating the camp. On the other, but they were also coming at them saying, do you have any food, anything, piece of candy, anything you can give us? So <clears throat> then as the next few days, uh, uh, other uh, uh, military units were coming in, uh, officers, I think General Eisenhower also visited the camp. But what I quoted from um, uh, with some, some length is uh, Edward R. Murrow, who was the, probably could be said with the premier American journalist of his day, mm -hmm. uh, came to Buchenwald and he uh, sent his report back. And even, you know, it's interesting his report because he's, he's talking about some really chilling and horrifying details, but he's also not saying everything too graphically because he knows they'd never air it. You know, they, oh, they would, yeah. there's, you know, there's, there's a certain amount of, of, of protecting the American public that I think uh, the censors would do, the network executives would do, CBS executives would do. So, but he does say also at the end of his report, if I've offended any of you by what I've just told you here, I'm not sorry. You know, oh, Morrow okay. was, was walking a fine line between what he wanted to say and what he would be allowed to say. I see. Were there any, uh, in your research, Besides the privately published book, were there any uh, diaries or any letters that you came across that were helpful to 
you know, kind of paint the picture of the conditions there? There, there are, there's, a, there's a book uh, by Thomas Childers, which uh, is a story um, about a, a pilot named Ray Perry, I think his name is, uh, that was published some years ago, which had some of his experiences. And he was also one of the pilots at, at, at Buchenwald. And there was a book written uh, years and years ago by Colin Burgess, which who was a British writer. And he wrote his book from the point of view of, a, of uh, some of the British uh, uh, prisoners uh, at, at Buchenwald. So they were very helpful because they contained information from people um, at the time that these books were written. You're talking about 20 and 30 years ago uh, that were not available anymore. You know, of, right. of those 170 uh, pilots, Allied pilots, uh, I found that there was one man still alive. He's 102 in Nevada. He was unable to um, uh, be of any help because of his age and his, his memory. Uh, so uh, I did not have the, the great advantage of actually being able to sit down with other survivors of Buchenwald, allied survivors of Buchenwald. And, and so, so whatever may have been written in the past about them that I have access to was helpful. I can imagine. Did you ever discover why they were taken to that uh, concentration camp? Well, I don't know why Buchenwald in particular, other than that it was the largest of the Nazi concentration camps, and maybe it was believed, because it, it was more than just 170 pilots. It was, like I say, over 2,000 people on that train. They were French resistance fighters, captured Russians. I mean, and there uh, were women, weren't they? Women, women yes. Although they were, before Buchenwald, diverted to another concentration camp called Ravensbrück. Um, but the reason why they were in a concentration camp at all is that in 1944, the Germans were becoming increasingly desperate because of the way the war was going against them. And one of the ways that they reacted to that was they declared that uh, not only would anybody, any, any French person or any, any, anybody really that would try to help down pilots would be shot. But the pilots themselves, if they had any contact, uh, any chance to try to escape or any contact with the French resistance, they were determined to be terror fleegers or basically terrorists. And so because of that designation, they did not would not enjoy the protections of the Geneva Convention, for example, and go to a regular POW camp. So it was it was it was really kind of a gratuitous thing. And and and, and a big reason why the pilots were sent, I think, to any concentration camp with the hope that they would die soon is that. They didn't want word to get out that they had done this to even just one pilot, let alone 170 of them, because then this possibility existed that the Allies could reciprocate. I mean, they they there were any number of German pilots who were in constant POW camps uh, in in, uh, in England, for example, and and as and as far away as America. Right. And the same could have been, now we did not have the Allies as far as we know. That would be an untold story, World War II, if we, the Allies had concentration camps, but. They could still make conditions extremely difficult for German pilots who were who were prisoners. Uh, so the idea with the Allied pilots is hopefully they'll die sooner rather than later, and we just stuff them in the ovens and nobody will ever know they existed. Because that was their intention, they probably were twice as harsh on them, wouldn't you say? They 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 were harsh on them. Uh, however, there was and, and a lot of this was Colonel Lamison and his leadership. There was also a bit of a resistance to go too far. Uh, because there were witnesses. You know, it's one thing if you just if they just die from malnutrition and starvation and diphtheria and, and cholera and the other diseases that were there. You could sort of say, well, that's too bad. But that's the way life is at a concentration camp. Yeah. But to actually 
beat them to death or shoot them, which was done to many other prisoners with witnesses around. You know, even some of the German higher ups at Buchenwald were were starting to look ahead. They could see the way the war was going. They could wonder about what their futures would be like if they ever ended up becoming prisoners of the Allies or the Russians. The book is called Lightning Down, a World War II story of survival. Tom, thank you so very much for being on the show. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, my guest will be author Robert Gowdy discussing his new book, The War of Jenkins' Ear. The War of Jenkins' Ear is a discrete thing that happened on this side of the globe for very particular reasons. They raised about 4,000 American soldiers from the colony under the English. They shipped them down to the Caribbean to fight this war. These are the first veterans of, of a foreign war. One of the captains being Lawrence Washington, who was George Washington's older brother. That's next time. And if you like what you hear, leave a review, a rating, or just click the follow button. You can find me at Twitter, at Rob Child, where you can share your comments about the show. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spirit. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group. I wanted to take a moment to thank our growing army of listener-supporter members. You make it possible to continue our mission of bringing you the best military history authors, filmmakers, and movers and shakers. If you're not a member yet, it's easy to join, and it takes just seconds. Scroll down to the bottom of this episode's description and click the support link. You'll come to our anchor page, click the support button, complete the brief form. It's that easy. We're planning loyalty perks and giveaways to roll out over the coming months for our early supporters who sign on before the end of the year. So don't wait. Become a member today, and thank you for your support.